are holy. You are a beyond imagination. You are everything and far more than our wildest dreams. Father God, I pray that you teach us today how to worship you, but also how to be a congregation and a community that is constantly in worship to you, that enjoys a connection, whether we're together or we're apart, we are the body of Jesus in this place. I ask dear Lord today that you awaken our hearts to the power and the grace and the strength of community. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Good morning. It's humid today, yes? yes? I thought I was sweating for no reason because I do that, but... I started ministry in the south, in the boot hill of Missouri. 100% humidity is pretty normal down there. And I used to wear double-breasted suits every Sunday. And I would sweat through a double-breasted suit. And people did not linger at the back door as they were leaving with me. <laughs> I don't know why they were in a hurry to leave, but they were. They were that. Man, it's so good to see you guys today. Look around. I know we already shook hands, but look at the person next to you. Is it good to see them? Is it, man, it, you made it to church today, you heathen. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just messing around. So uh, we're in our series, So Simple. We've talked about the Bible, and we've talked about uh, prayer. And last week, we talked about exercising your faith. And today, we're talking about the team. All of these things are things that you need if your faith's going to thrive. And in fact, if you leave any of these out, your faith isn't going to thrive. It's going to, to it, it may not make it, it may get myopic or it may get turned in on itself and become entirely about you. The idea of a narcissistic Christian faith is not a thing. Something that is all about you. And so today we're talking about community. And I, I'm going to tell you, this is, I think this is the hardest part of following Jesus is community. I think this is the hardest part. Why? Because for some strange reason, you people are not like me. <laughs> and that's kind of how it is in life, right? We're always looking for someone who's like me. And then we meet someone, we think, well, man, you're like me. And then you get to know them for another week or month. You go, well, you're not actually like me. And I become like my own measuring stick for what a, a cool person to hang out with or someone I can be friends with is like. And so th that's not a good measurement, but that is what makes it difficult because we're always looking for someone who's like ourselves or, or like me, so to speak. So what this has produced in uh, modern Christianity, and this is Michael's assessment of where the church is or where Christendom is today. So this isn't scripture, this is Michael ranting. You're like, he does that a lot. Yeah, I do. That's, thank you. It, it's my therapy. Anyway, so, uh, so, man, Christianity, rightly, rightly, Christendom focused on a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, we are like, and I don't know what number decade right now, of talking about a personal relationship with Jesus. And, and that's good. That's good. I'm glad we talked about it. However... I think one of the, I think sometimes we overreact. Do you ever overreact? Anyone in the room overreact? Okay, none of you. Okay, so it was my last church. <laughs> so I think it was an, a reaction to religion. I don't know how you, maybe you have a great religion background or backstory. I don't. Religion to me is not fun. Why? Because it's not relational, 
It's rules. Religion's all about looking a certain way, talking a certain way, presenting yourself a certain way. And I think somewhere along the way of the last 50 to 75 years, people began to realize that that is duplicity and hypocrisy. If you present what you are not to be accepted by a group of people, that's a lie. And so what we have to do, or what happened with this personal relationship with Jesus is we basically rejected religion. We rejected a lot of things. But that was one of the things. We don't want a rule-based faith. Not even sure that's possible. So it became really important throughout evangelicalism and church and all these things that you're probably familiar with, it became really important to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Because Christianity was never supposed to be a religion. You can quote me on that. And, and there are people who disagree with me, but they're wrong. Christianity was never supposed to be a religion. It was always supposed to be a relationship. That's why Jesus said in John 4, those who worship me, they're not going to need to go to Jerusalem. They can worship me from anywhere because they're going to do it in spirit and in truth. And he was teaching us that actual connection with God is relational by nature, not religious by nature. So that was good. We focused on a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, good job. And then it got weird. How do we do that? We are so good at making things weird. And I'm like the best at it. So, you know, I can't even fault anybody because I have a, I could win a championship of making it weird. What happened was this personal relationship with Jesus became personal only. It became completely internal. Now, all of a sudden, we can't even talk about my faith anymore. All of a sudden, it's, well, this is, this is who I think God is. This is what I think is right or wrong. And, this, and our faith became completely the conceptions of our own mind. Not for everybody, but this has begun to happen. And so weird things begin to happen. You, you begin to see the church move from a, um, a logical, uh, a, what's, what's, uh, what's another, like, not, I hate to say confrontational, but it moved from this more aggressive approach to following Christ to something that became more intuitive and more internal. And what happened was you, you had the, the masculine expressions of faith where we're aggressive, where we're truth, where we have uh, you know, this, this warrior-type concept began to diminish. And as they began to diminish, certain people that were logical and intellectual-based began to drift out of evangelical churches. And it began the cycle where the church moved from this masculine-led thing, which was probably too much, and as people began to leave that were of that mindset, the church became more feminine. Say, Michael, you're about to make me mad. Listen to me. Just hear me out. The music moved from calls to worship, from um, call of action, from fun, from all filled, to more heartfelt intuitive. As, as, that, as those, because God made men and women, okay? God made them. And you can disagree with me. Uh, that's cool, but I have the platform. God made them, and he intended Eve in the image of God and Adam in the image of God. What I'm trying to show you is that the personal relationship with Jesus began to become so intuitive and so internal that now, in your faith, you end up all alone. 
And the parts of the faith that were aggressive and assertive and that were even a tad invasive because they were designed to be, God built in accountability into his church. They began to fade away. And so now we're in this weird place where everyone comes to church and has an individual relationship with Jesus, but we don't actually have a corporate relationship with Jesus. I could list reasons for that all day long. It's hard to get along with each other. It's hard to forgive people. Our feelings we wear on our sleeves all the time. We have a hard time seeing past ourselves. There are a lot of reasons for it, okay? But just because there are reasons does not mean it should stand. Okay? Just because it's hard to be a corporate body does not mean we cannot be a community of faith. In fact, if we don't learn the vertical and the horizontal nature of our relationship with God, then our faith will be stunted. And we will always think it's about us. And we will forget that it's actually all of us for Him. Does that make sense? Did I scare you off? I was working on it. I'm just kidding. So how do we come into a community relationship? If you really read the New Testament, like if you just really just kind of focus on the letters of Paul and you quit telling yourself you can't understand it because you can, it's pretty simple. You have the Holy Spirit in you and he helps. If you read it, you'll find out that Paul and John and James and even Luke, all these guys talk a lot, a lot, a lot about getting along with each other. In fact, almost all of Paul's letters are, okay, here's the truth, the unadulterated truth. Now, be nice to each other. <sighs> Not exactly. He's more like, okay, be patient with each other, be long-suffering, all these kind of things. But So there's this, the point, what I'm trying to make is that the, the writers of the New Testament knew that the hardest part of being the ecclesia or being the church was not what you do for God, it's what you do with others for God. That's the challenge. So when we talk today about the team, it's great that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Today I want to help us have a corporate relationship with Jesus, a community with Jesus, which means that I have people around me, that I'm not a rock star serving Jesus. I'm on a team that works with other teams to pursue Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Still with me? He's like, Michael, I hope there are jokes or you're going to lose me. I have no idea. The jokes just come when they come. Every time I plan a joke, it goes bad. I, I can't, can't even do it. So, and unless I plan to pick on Leonard. That's the only thing. Ephesians 4, 1. Paul writes, Therefore I, a prisoner serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you've been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Doesn't that sound like Paul is very concerned with our relationships? I bet as I went through those words, you thought of several of them. You go, oh, I don't like that. Being patient? Mm -mm, no, thank you. Making every effort to stay unified? That sounds hard. 
And so Paul writes to us about relationships because relationships are the ligaments that hold the body together. It is our relationships that make us corporate. It's not us coming to church together that makes us a community. It's not sharing a building and listening to a a sermon that makes us a community. It's the relationships we have with each other. That's that's why it's so important that you you not just come to church, but you, you come early or you hang out late or you do something later, get in a small group or something to build relationships with people. And I know it's hard. I really know it's hard. But it, to do it, you have to start with what Paul talks about. Humble yourselves. Humility. Humility. Pride says, I only hang out with people like me because I'm the only one that's awesome. If you're not like me, you're not as awesome as me, and we can't hang out. Birds of a feather, all that. That sounds ridiculous, I know, and I'm poking fun. But the reality is, is that in order for us to connect with other people, we have to walk in something called humility. And this is what Jesus demonstrated. In fact, I would argue, and I think I could win the argument, uh, not that I am really good at winning arguments, but still, I could argue that Jesus was the guy who invented humility. Like, he took humility. I'm not saying it didn't exist before. I'm just saying he's the first guy that came on the scene and said, hey, I'm the son of God. And then, with all of his merit, all of his credibility, all of his skills, and even all of his miracles, he never lorded that over anybody. He just stooped down and served people. So Jesus demonstrated humility. In fact, there's no other faith that was present at that time looked at humility and looked at leaders the way Jesus taught us to lead. No other faith came at things saying that in order to lead, you had to be the least. You had to serve. He's the, he invented the concept that we live by today. So if we're going to be in relationship with people, this is where we begin. Humility is when I realize that I can respect you for the sole reason that God put you on this earth and you're his creation. I can give you respect. I don't have to like your life. I don't have to, you don't have to be like me. You don't have to earn my respect. That's a popular American thing to say. You have to earn my respect. Not in the kingdom. In the kingdom, respect is a gift we give. And so Jesus treated people with incredible respect. But giving respect to someone who hasn't earned it takes great humility it recognizes each person as god's god's creation god's person and so this is the beginning of relationships and then my favorite word of all my favorite favorite i'm lying like a rug on a wet floor (laughs) patience this is what makes church relationships hard they require patience is anyone in the room good at patience has anyone got rid of their microwave? Got, got rid of your microwave. This young man over here no longer has a microwave. That's the best thing that happened to me today, right there. All right. So far. No, I'm just kidding. That worship was amazing. So relationships take time. Why? Because relationships take time to get to know someone, to understand someone, and trust someone. Trust is a process. 
Now, I bet all of you have relationships in your life that you like met someone, you're like, oh man, we hit it off, and, and it's been great ever since. Well, for every time that happens, which I don't think is really that common, it also happens that you, you meet someone who you think is like you, and then you, know, you find out three weeks later they're not like you, and then you drift apart. That, that, is, though, that, that is the nature of relationships today. Patience comes in when I am like, I'm not just looking for someone who's like me. Actually, what I'm looking for as a child of God is someone who's pursuing Jesus. Do you realize how much easier your life would be if you would just seek relationships with people who are already pursuing Jesus? Deep relationships. I'm not saying you shouldn't have relationships with a lot of people, but those deep relationships need to be Christ-pursuing relationships. So, relationships are going to take that time, because it takes time to get to know people, it takes time to find out where they are, it takes time to understanding, understand them. My point is, is that real connection takes time. Real connection takes time. And okay, one more soapbox. Uh, that means I'm going to rant just for a second. Another thing I should throw out here in the relational thing is, relationships are important. When it comes to a church... I want to make sure you hear this. When it comes to a church, you don't get to pick your church. What? Michael? Yeah, because we ain't Walmart. We ain't Santa Fe. We're not McDonald's. I'll try and fix my grammar here. My Southern comes out when I get irate. So anyway, now you know. What, What do I mean by that? You don't join a church. God adds you to a church. Read Acts. It's a God thing. Well, you know, the reason I picked my church is because... No, the reason God added you to this church is because. And that's where we have to begin to think. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that you don't just be a part of a church until you get mad. I'm meddling, yes, I know. It means that when things get tough, you exercise humility and patience... And you express the love of Christ that has been expressed upon you. And you invest the time to build a community. That makes sense? I mean, that was as simple as I could put it right there. And this is how this works. Okay? Um, You may not have noticed. Today I'm probably projecting it more than normal. But I'm actually a tad annoying. I know it. Yeah, it's true. I didn't know it. I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was shocked. I was shocked. Like 10, 12 years ago, Chris, I guess 12 years ago, Chris and I were on a cruise and uh, we went to a comedy show and I was heckling the comedian because that was fun for me. And the guy behind me, not the comedian, the guy behind me said, this guy's obnoxious about me. It took me a second to realize what he was talking about. <laughs> and then I, I'm like, you know what? I think I am obnoxious. <laughs> it takes a lot of patience to love me, to hang out. My poor wife, I feel sorry for her all the time. I don't, every morning I wake up and I'm just like, thank God you're still here. <laughs> you don't get to pick your church. God puts you in a church. And it's funny because every church has soothing people and irritating people. Now, I know all of you are like, well, I'm a soothing person at ordinary faith. Here's the thing. Jesus soothed some and irritated others. 
And it's going to be the exact same for you. There are people that are going, you're going to soothe, and there are people you're going to irritate. Uh, we, we don't stay together because we're all so wonderful and soothing. We stay together because we're community in Christ, and we're pursuing Jesus together, and God put us in this place at this time and what he wants us to do is, as a church or ecclesia, he wants us corporately as a community to pursue the will of the Father. Yes. Does that make sense? Pretty simple. The team is important. It takes a lot of patience and it takes unity. I won't say much about unity other than this is how I believe churches should run. Uh, we don't do majority anything at Ordinary Faith. We do unity. And so we want to be unified on things, not to the point of silencing a voice, but we do things, especially in our leadership groups, where we don't move forward unless there is unity. There are always going to be divisions and disagreements. Unity does not mean I have to diminish or be less. Uh, I'm, I don't even think I can do that. I'm really obnoxious, uh, like I said. But what I can do is I can approach and confront disagreements and disunity as an opportunity to submit to Christ and to work with my brother or sister and be patient and realize that not everything has to be done instantly. I learned years ago, it was a real blessing. I'll give this to you if you want to write it down. Deferment is a good decision often. Every time you feel pressured to make a choice, that's probably going to put you in a bad place. Give yourself some time. And if someone can't give you time, then you definitely need to take time. So, you, uh, <clears throat> talking about relationships. Now, oh man, I really burned too much time right there because I really need to focus on the second part. How long have you guys got? I mean, can we go, to, can we go a while? Okay. All right, so Hebrews, I mean, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Do you guys, I mean, if, if you're struggling with whether or not you believe the Bible or not, we totally respect you and want to help you with that journey. But how many of you believe the Bible is, is a good book, that God gave it to us, that it's inspired, that it's, that it's the Word of God given to us? How many of you believe that? You can give me a nod. Okay, good deal. So let's look back to Ephesians 4. Look at this. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Who gave these gifts? Good job. You passed the quiz. Do you think Jesus is an Indian giver? No. What I mean by it, do you think Jesus would give something and then take it back? No. Okay. I just set you up. These are the gifts Jesus gave the church, the apostles. Oh, we don't believe in apostles anymore. <clears throat> Prophets. <laughs> Prophets. I have, she has a copy of my notes and she has things written in to say. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. The apostles. The prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. This is worthy of a whole series. This one passage right here. I call it, it's been called the fivefold ministry. Depending on your background, <laughs> you may come to this and go, well, I can see the last three of those, but I think the first two are done. That's how I was raised. But here's the thing I believe the New Testament's valid. I, believe, I don't think God took anything back. And so what I see here, I see functions. Now, some people are going to argue with me, and they're going to see, say they see uh, offices. 
And so I don't actually care how you see it, so forth. But this is, you need to know my interpretive measure. And what I see is functions. What I mean is, I, I, I like the idea of functional things, functional ministry, functional medicine, things that are practical and have application. That's what I see. And so I see here something that has application. I see Jesus giving to the church five ministries. And here's my belief. I believe that every one of you has one of these as your primary way of relating and doing ministry. In fact, most of you have one of these that's your primary, and then you have a secondary to back that up. That's what I believe. Now, what are these? What is an apostle? He, let me finish the text. And he makes the whole body fit perfectly together as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. You see that these five functions are critical to the body of Jesus, the body of Christ on earth. They have to exist, is what I'm saying, based on the text itself. So what are they? What is this about? I think if you can understand your function, how God wired you, the gifts that he gave you, if you can understand that, wrap your head around that, that it will give you some confidence in what you do for God. And it will help us as a body because I as a pastor need all five of these functions to exist at Ordinary Faith and I know they are here. I know without the shadow of an intimidation of a doubt in Christ Jesus that ordinary faith has everything it needs to accomplish God's purpose at this point in time. And when he has a larger purpose, he will bring others to fulfill those roles. We will always have what we need because God is not chintzy or cheap. He is good and abundant, okay? So what are these? So the apostles, and I have subnames for these to kind of help you wrap your head around. The apostles... I know that there are those who wrap their heads around the, apost- the original apostles, the 12, and their ministry with Jesus. But I think what we're talking here about a little a apostle, which is a, a missionary, a trailblazer. So what it is, is I think there are people who God gives vision, who gives future. They're, they're like the first one on the scene with the crazy idea. That's the apostle. They're nuts. Yeah, that's my function. I'm the... I'm the, the I'm the nut. I'm the missionary. That's how I see them. They end up with the first place with a different idea. you got to realize that a lot of the terminology that the disciples are using did not come from the religious world. Jesus borrowed words from the Greek world. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the Old Testament and the New Testament are two entirely different worlds. And you read the Old Testament, you are reading about a Hebrew world that's being affected by Babylon and Persia and all these places. But by the time you get to the New Testament, it's a Roman world. It's a very, very different way of thinking in a very, very different culture. What happened? What changed? I'll tell you what happened, what changed. Apostles happened. What do you mean? The Greek world started with Alexander the Great and four. They began to evangelize the world with their culture. And they begin to send out apostles of their culture to teach the world how to be Greek. And it worked. Of course, it doesn't help if you beat everybody up in, in war. That, that was a big part of it. But still, they sent these apostles out, and, the, and, and ecclesias too, which was also a Greek term. And they changed the world through teaching a new culture to an old world. I don't know if you can see it yet, but here Jesus sends out the ecclesia, a Greek term, to preach the gospel of a kingdom, a new culture, to change the world and prepare it for his return. 
So apostles are trailblazers, troublemakers, whatever, the sent ones. Some of you are pioneers. Some of you are the ones that you see a new idea and that you want to do something about it. And so you don't mind being the first one to blaze the trail. Then you have the prophets. And I believe that the New Testament prophet and the Old Testament prophet, the covenant changed the roles of the prophet in, in a large sense. But here's how I see the prophets. I see prophets as the navigators. I, uh, I tease Tammy all the time that she's always been my prophet on our leadership team. Here's why. The prophet has the map. The prophet knows where we've been and the course ahead. The prophet keeps us connected to the past revelation of God and the revelation of God that is now inspiring us. God is always revealing himself to people. We're all at different stages of growth. The prophet keeps us on the course and they are so annoying. I'm just kidding. I just did that to pick on Tammy. Why do I, why do I say that? Because I'm, I'm, I'm like a missionary mindset. I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's raise the trail, let's start some trouble. Well, let's not get in trouble, but let's start some trouble, but then maybe no one will get mad and we'll get away with it. That's how I really am. And then I always have these gifts in my life, and, to, and there are other prophets that they show up, and they're there for me, and they, they say, hey, hey, this is great. I'm glad we're going forward. But hey, God's Word says this. This is where we started. This is our course. We can't deviate from the course that God has given us. That's what the prophet does. I call them the navigators. They keep us on track. They're very concerned about truth. It's also important that in the New Covenant, Paul says that prophets and prophecy build up the church. That's their main role is building up the body. So, there's, there's that. You, apostles, prophets, evangelists. I came from that evangelical background. So my idea of an evangelist is a guy out on the street corners preaching the gospel or doing that Ray Comfort thing, insulting everybody until they trust Jesus. You probably have to know who Ray Comfort is to think that's funny. But. Um, or they're out going out knocking on doors and, and sharing the four spiritual laws or giving out tracts or all those kind of things. That's what I used to think an evangelist was. And sometimes they're the, the ones who come to a community and they hold these, these big meetings. I've come to believe that, that that is evangelism, but that's not necessarily an evangelist. Here's how God taught this to me. A few years ago, a young woman came to Ordinary Faith with her kids, and it was just her and her kids. There was nothing about her that is the kind of person that would go out and preach the gospel to anyone. She was not comfortable sharing any gospel presentation like the four spiritual laws or any of those kind of things. Totally outside of her wheelhouse. But I'm watching. She sat back in the corner of this church, and I won't say which one in case you guess who she is. She sat back in there, and all of a sudden, within a few weeks, she had a sister here. A couple more weeks, her mom was here. A couple more weeks... Extended family starting to show up. A couple more weeks, a few family, a few friends were showing up. Within six months, that evangelist had gone from her and her two kids to 25 people in one section of a church. That's an evangelist. I call them the connectors. And, and so they may not preach the gospel, so to speak, but they declare the good news, which are different things, I would argue. I call them the morale officers, too. 
They keep us reminded that the good news is good news. And so there are those who are like that. People gather around. They're the connectors. Then there's the pastors. And I have some bad news. I know so few lead pastors who actually function as a pastor. We gave them that name. It made sense. We called them that. It means, in fact, the Greek word here more, it means more shepherds. But the reality is that in almost every church I've served in and many that I've served alongside, the actual pastors were below the radar. And our church is filled with them. They are the ones who come along and do like a shepherd does. They take care of the sheep. They nurture the flock. They, I had a friend, uh, I don't know, Brother Arthur Mestis. He taught me what a pastor was. He couldn't teach. He wasn't a teacher, wasn't a preacher. He had a small group in his home, and every week he was in touch with someone, several people in that group, finding out what they needed, how to take care of them. He spent a lot of his weekends mowing grass, fixing people's houses, working on cars. He was a pastor. He served those people and bandaged their wounds and bound them up. He was a nurturer, so to speak. So he'd support people. So some of you are pastors, and I thank God for you, because this isn't my strongest suit. I'm more of the trailblazer, going, oh man, there's wounded sheep back there. Dang. Oops. Let's go. (laughs) And so I have to have the pastors around me that are like, hey, we can't go without the flock, man. Get them in the cart. Let's go. Anyway, so. Um, and then there are the teachers. How are you going to teach a world a new culture if you don't have teachers? If you don't have someone to break out and present how the new culture that's coming works. And so you have these teachers who come and they, they present how the kingdom works and they teach people about that function. I believe all these still exist. I do believe I see them more as functions and not offices. And I'm sure many would disagree with me on that. My point is this. I think every one of you has one of those five things that's really your bread and butter. It's your thing. And you probably have at least one secondary that you also move well within. The team needs you in position. We need you playing your role. We need you in your zone. Because Jesus didn't put us here for one guy to lead the show. That has never been. Jesus Himself surrounded Himself with 12 other guys. And they surrounded themselves with more and more people. That's how this works. We are a team. So I believe that all of you have this function, and I kind of want to do a pop quiz right now. How many of you think you're this, and how many think? But I'm, I don't, I'm already going to go long. And so, uh, and, and, and this was a short sermon when it started, and I don't know what happened. <clears throat> Every time I go, okay, this one will be short, 30 minutes and we're done, that's the one that turns into an hour. Why do we need the team? So let, let, me, let me finish as strong as I can. Life isn't just a few difficulties, but it'll be okay in the end. Life isn't a season of peace that just has some setbacks. Your life is a war. And someone is trying to stop you. And someone is trying to end you. 
Michael, I'm not sure I believe that. It's hard to believe. When you start bringing up enemies and entities that you can't see with your physical eyes, I get it. I get it. All I can offer you is what Paul said. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against our wives, our husbands, our kids, our politicians, our boss. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. I'm using the analogy of a game and a team today and next week. But you must understand, this is no game. This is life or death. This is survival or ending. This is why it's so critical, it's so dangerous for a church to be in division. It's why it's so harmful for your family or your business or your volunteer group to be in division because the enemy is trying to pit you and me against each other. Trying to pit you and your wife, you and your husband against each other your kids against each other because he wants you fighting the wrong battle why the 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 hardest thing to manage they we learned from world war ii is that when you train people to fight and you put them in the fight and then when the fight is over they don't know how to stop fighting so they fight each other and that's exactly what's happened in the church today is we don't realize that we have an enemy that's trying to destroy us. So rather than fight the enemy because we, we don't quite know if we're confident of that, we fight each other. And that's where the community comes in. We have to stand up for each other and realize that, this, that when we fight for each other, we fight for relationships, we fight for community, we resist the enemy. We stop what he's doing. So this isn't a game. We also need to remember that people are not our problem. If your problem has a name stuck to it, you have not found the root of your problem yet. If your problem has a name on it, a person's name, you have not achieved the root of that problem. There is a deeper issue at at play. And, And one of the things that drives me a little crazy about relationships, even in my own life, is how seldom people actually talk about the actual problems in a relationship. We fight about not the problem. That's what I call it. That's how I title it. We always fight about not the problem. I promise you, you and your spouse fight about not the problem all the time. That's your main fight is not the problem. If you ever could just look a little deeper and begin to realize that the problem is, is, how I, is things that I'm feeling, things that are scaring me, things that are frightening me, and begin to get to some real truth, like instead of why didn't you uh, put the seat down, That's, that was a feminine one, or uh, why didn't you put gas in the car? I tried to even it out there. I don't think I achieved it. I think I'm in trouble anyway. <laughs> and we began to say, the real problem is I feel betrayed. The real problem is I feel alone. The real problem is I feel frightened. The real problem is I have a need and I don't know how to meet it. 
If we could ever get from the peripherals that we're fighting about to the roots and the reasons for those, we could stop fighting each other and we could actually start fighting the problem. Also, we need to realize that there are spiritual influences in the world. Jesus dealt with them all the time. There was a lady who was bound, bent over, and Jesus released her from a spirit of infirmity, an influence. The enemy had bound her with something, probably a bitterness and an unforgiveness in her life. But he had done that to her, and Jesus ended that influence. And that's what's going on with a lot of division in the world today is there are influences in dis- on display. Influences of divorce, influences of suicide, influence of anxiety, atheism, religion even, fear, isolation. These are influences that are coming from a darker place than the people you know. A darker place than the things you can see. We have to be community because we need each other to fight for each other. So this morning, I don't know, you ever get up and you're just not feeling it? Put it on Facebook, I'm just not feeling it today. (laughs) Why do you do it like that, Michael? I have no idea. That's... That's just where it came from, and that's what happened. Sorry. It comes out like this sometimes. Just not feeling it today. So this morning, I, you know, for some reason, the Lord had me up between 1 and 3 a.m., which I hate those mid-morning meetings. And um, so I finally got back to sleep and, and got up around 5.30 or 6 or something. And, and so I'm just, uh, I'm kind of dragging. I mean, not dragging, but, you know, I'm dragging. Not yet. Yeah, not yet. That's right. Afternoon. If I don't get my nap, if I don't get my nap, so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, it's just not feeling it. You know, I'm, I'm studying. I'm trying to get some things done for this morning service, and I'm just like, I'm praying on the way here. Oh man, Lord, I just, man, I feel about as spiritual as a pretzel right now, and uh, twisted up and salty. That's how I feel. <laughs> I don't know why this is so funny, but it is. I'm enjoying it. So I get out there and I park, you know, and I come in and I start doing my thing, making some coffee, and uh, I like to pray for the room and change the atmosphere of the room. And, and uh, as I was praying for the room, you know, it's still, I'm feeling pretty mediocre, some meh going on. And I go to the back there and uh, I'm, I'm getting some coffee and, and all of a sudden I felt it. Someone was praying for me this morning. I knew it. Why? Because the influence upon me changed. The weight that I was carrying, the the cloud I was under, went away. And I I know I've I've felt this so many times. One of the benefits and perks of my jobs is people do think to pray for me a little more. And so I'm back here, and as as I'm feeling it lift, I'm, I'm like, Lord, thank you. I don't know who's praying for me right now, but thank you. And I don't know who it was, but that's how an influence and a spirit can change. And that's when I knew someone was fighting for me this morning. And that's what we have to do for each other. We have to fight for each other, but we need to do it in the courts of heaven. We need, we need, to, we need to depend upon our God to do things more. Everybody's in a mood to fight nowadays, but we're still not yet in the mood to pray, to fast and pray. That sermon's coming in a couple of months. So we need to realize we're fighting spiritual battles. And so, you're on a team. We're on a team. 
And if you're just joining us today and you're passing through or you don't know if we're your church, I get it. But I want you to know this. You're supposed to be on a team. Jesus is going to add you to a church somewhere. And when he does, commit to the team. Get in the huddle. Get involved. Care and understand. And all this is built on relationships. So that's my challenge to you this week. I want you to, I'm challenging me and you, all of us, to work on our relationships, to fight for the community. And today I want to do something a little weird. Are you ready? So I need all my teachers. I don't care what you teach, I don't care what grades, I care about you, all my teachers. I would like you to stand up right now. And everybody grab your communion cup. Everybody grab your communion cup. Let's all, let's hang on. Before you stand up, I want to see the teachers first because we're going to gather around our teachers. All right? Okay, so now you have permission to leave your seat and go gather around a teacher with your communion cup. I know it. All right. Gather around a teacher with your communion cup. Teachers, I know this is weird. You can do it. All right. Okay, how are we doing? If it's too awkward, too uncomfortable for you, we, we, are, we do not have police walking around yet. We're doing this around communion because communion is for the community. We're gathered around our teachers right now, and what we're going to do is we're going to take communion around our teachers all together, because we're a community, and then we're going to pray for our teachers. And I'd like someone that's near a teacher around there, I'd like every teacher to get an audible prayer around them as soon as we get through with communion. Can we handle this? Some of you can handle this. Some of you may have to walk around the room. Say, Michael, it's weird. I know. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, and do this in remembrance of me. So let's take our bread. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. I think I had an error in there. Oh, I did. The cup. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And one last one, 1 Corinthians 11.26 for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
This is a family meal. This is a community. And our teachers are facing a challenging week. And we are going to fight for them right now. So let's, what I'd like to do is I'd like to have people praying over our teachers right now. Steve, could we get a music background for just like three or four minutes? And conclude our service right here. But I want to pray. And as I pray, you'll understand why. Father God, I don't know why you've invested so much in any of us, but especially me. I thank you, Lord, for the gift I get to be as to serve this body as a lead pastor. I thank you, Lord, that you gave uh, me an anointing and a gift that is through no effort of my own. And so, Lord, I come to you now under the authority of the anointing you've given me. And I stand under the umbrella of the Father, the authority of the Father, under the authority of the Son, under the authority of the leadership structure of ordinary faith that, go, that watches over and holds me accountable. And in that place of that position of Jesus' authority, I want to stand for my, our teachers at Ordinary Faith. And Father, if it's okay, the ones who even aren't part of Ordinary Faith, but they're here today, if I could fight for them for just a minute. And Lord, I want to just ask you in the name of Jesus to banish and bind the spirit of fear and anxiety and oppression. I ask you, Lord God, to squash these enemies that are trying to disrupt our teachers' lives and create chaos. And Lord, I ask you to bind the author of confusion. In Jesus' name. And then, then I want to release in the name of the Lord Jesus the kingdom. The kingdom of peace and of love and of power and of a sound mind. I want to release, Lord, gentleness and goodness and faith and hope. Lord God, I ask you in the name of Jesus to send all of our teachers into this week, not in dread and anxiety, but in power. And in grace and in strength, I pray, Lord God, that they would walk into this week with no fear, but they would know that their Father always wins, and He always wins on their behalf. So, Lord God, this is the blessing I release. And God, I thank You. I thank You for calling these teachers to fight for You in difficult places. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have an amazing week. We love you all.